Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Colin R. Cook, MD, about the article, The Burden of Influenza-Associated Critical Illness Hospitalizations, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Cook works as an assistant professor of pulmonary critical care medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This paper uses a series of uh, mathematical modeling and data from the United States to look at the contribution of influenza to critical illness hospitalizations. And the conclusions are quite intriguing. Influenza is a common cause of critical illness, and it may very well be that we need to empirically treat more of these patients in order to uh, treat them appropriately. So I would like to start posing my questions to Dr. Cook. Thank you for being here. Can you tell us more about your background and your role within the team that generated this study? Sure. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I wanted to express regrets of Justin Ortiz, who was the first author of this manuscript and wasn't able to be with us today. He's asked me to fill in for him. I'm an intensivist by training. I practice here at the University of Michigan in the medical intensive care unit and do epidemiology of critical illness syndromes as well as health services research surrounding the care for the critically ill. And I was involved in this study as the senior author, largely in a supervisorial role for Justin as well as the team of investigators that put together this unique set of data to try and answer the question, to what extent does influenza cause critical illness in the United States? And so, you know, I assisted the, the team largely in interpreting the data analysis as well as putting the findings in context and provided the team with some oversight about how to approach this sort of analysis using claims records from um, hospital-based care. And so I have to give all credit where credit is due that Justin did the heavy lifting in this particular project, but with a lot of help from other authors on the study as well. Great. Well, let's get started talking about this important paper. I would like you to summarize the goals that you had when you were designing the study. Sure. So it's long been known that in the United States, influenza is associated with the greatest annual morbidity and mortality of any vaccine-preventable disease. So it's a major problem here in the United States, and not only in the U.S., but also internationally. The World Health Organization, as well as other public health authorities, have long called for plans to really characterize the burden of respiratory disease and do things to try and avert the consequences of respiratory viruses in the world, with influenza really being the most important respiratory virus there is. The problem that we've had, however, is that there's really been limited ability to assess the burden of disease because characterizing influenza prevalence or burden is difficult and expensive because it requires influenza tests, which cost a fair amount of money. And the existing work that's been out there really relies on physician testing, but not necessarily surveillance and also focuses on pneumonia, which is really only a fraction of what influenza can actually cause. And so we really undertook this study to more globally characterize the extent to which influenza causes disease within the hospital, particularly focusing on severe disease or people that have a critical illness syndrome that we've defined as sepsis, respiratory failure, or in-hospital death. So we decided to take on this question using existing data, both from hospitalization information, but also merging that with data from the Centers for Disease Control that tracks influenza testing nationally to form really a unique data set to allow us to quantitate what fraction of critical illness is attributed to influenza-related disease. So my next question for you about this is, 
Are there particular patient populations for which this study is relevant? So we largely looked at adult patients only and those that were hospitalized, you know, that had a hospitalization. So specifically, we limited our analyses to people in three states on the western coast, particularly those in California, Washington, and Arizona between the years of 2003 to 2009. And we identified individuals that had one of three conditions, as I mentioned, those who had hospitalization that sepsis was their diagnosis, those who had respiratory failure, or those who had an in-hospital death. And we defined these three populations as patients that were potentially critically ill, fully recognizing that not all of those patient groups necessarily are admitted to an intensive care unit, but nonetheless can still have severe disease cared for on the floor in particular. So largely, when thinking about interpreting our the results of our findings, we think that they're largely applicable to hospitalized patients that suffer one of these three critical illness conditions, respiratory failure, sepsis, and hospital death. We chose not to do any analyses for children and chose not to define a more expansive group of critical illness conditions, largely because sepsis and respiratory failure account for so much of the severe disease in the hospital, but also account for the majority of disease that's severe that's related to influenza as well. And in your own words, could you summarize the most interesting aspects for you of the findings that your group made? Sure. So by linking the Centers for Disease Control influenza surveillance data with the discharge records from hospitalizations in California, Washington, and Arizona, we found that approximately 1.3% of all of critical illness hospitalizations over that study period between 2003 and 2009 were attributable to influenza. And that was over the entire study period. If we were to then limit the analysis only to the time periods in which it overlaps with flu season, typically January through April of the year, about 3.4% of all critical illness hospitalizations were attributable to influenza disease. And interestingly, when we then went into those patients' hospitalizations records, or at least their administrative billing claims, we found that only a tiny fraction of those individuals were coded as having influenza during their hospital stay. Approximately only 10% of those discharge records had a code for influenza. This suggests either one of two things, either that influenza is not often coded for people who potentially have influenza, or another alternative explanation is that these patients are not necessarily being recognized, and so the care team is not documenting that they have influenza and thereby potentially preventing them from having a code in their discharge record consistent with an influenza-related disease. That has some implications if you were to believe that we're potentially under-recognizing influenza. The ones that we're identifying through surveillance means suggest that the burden is much greater than perhaps we are recognizing. Right. And obviously, if we are under-recognizing those patients, then we are potentially losing out on effective treatment for those patients, correct? That's right. So influenza is actually a relatively treatable condition, particularly if it's recognized early in the course of disease. We have medications that can be administered to patients with influenza that in less severe cases can reduce the duration of symptoms, but also has improvements in outcomes when administered to patients with severe disease, such as those with respiratory failure or potentially meet criteria for sepsis. So administration of oseltamivir, for example, or Tamiflu in the early stages of severe influenza has the ability to actually improve outcomes. And so it's important if we are under-recognizing those patients, there may be a population that could be treated and potentially have better outcomes than what they're experiencing if they're unrecognized. Right. That is extremely thought-provoking that we could actually be doing a better job treating these patients. 
I wanted to ask you more about the analysis of the data and the methodology involved. The first thing is just me being curious.、Uh, were there particular comorbidities that you noticed in these patients that led to a worse outcome? For example, it doesn't sound like that's what you're looking for. But for example, you know, concomitant tobacco use, respiratory disease. Yes, that wasn't really a focus of our analysis to examine how different risk factors. Potentially corresponded to differences in outcomes. One thing that we did look at was how differences in age may track with the likelihood of having a severe influenza-associated critical illness. And what we found was that as you move across age groups from 18 years old up to greater than 85, which we included in our analysis, we found that the incidence rate of influenza-associated critical illness went up, and the attributable risk. Or the attributable fraction of cases that were due to influenza also went up. So, for example, if you looked at the age group of 18 to 49 year olds, only about one percent of all critical illness that we looked at was attributable to influenza. However, if you then looked at individuals over the age of 85, about two percent of all critical illness was associated with influenza. And this data tracks with other influenza data nationally in in the non-critical care setting. That age is an important risk factor for developing influenza and also developing complications of influenza as well. So really, age was kind of the only specific demographic or risk factor that we looked at to try and show how influenza burden differed. Sure, and it sounds like really the point of your study design. Wasn't to look at the various comorbidities, but really to look at the overall diagnosis of these patients and whether they were potentially being missed. So that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. We were sort of more interested in characterizing the general epidemiology of influenza-related disease as opposed to kind of understanding, trying to understand the risk factors.、Mm-hmm. And for those of us who are not professionals in data analysis, I wanted to do my bit to try to make the methodology a little bit more transparent. So I wanted to ask you about this technique of negative binomial regression, and、uh, you know how how you guys pick that, and、uh, why was that a particular tool that helped you to analyze the data? Right. So, so that's a great question. So negative binomial regression is a commonly applied method to analyze data that are called、uh, count data. So what do I mean by that? Well, our specific analysis looked at the number of critical illness hospitalizations in a given month, and then tried to determine what fraction of those critical illness hospitalizations were attributed to influenza disease. So because it was a variable that we call a count variable, counting the number of cases, it's a relatively commonly applied regression technique for that type of data. In general, however, what the model allowed us to do was to estimate How seasonal trends in hospitalization and hospitalization for critical illness varied over time, and then how those trends varied when we factor in surveillance data from the Centers for Disease Control. So, in general, when we were performing our analysis, we we sort of had a two-stage approach. The first analysis, we generated a, a regression model that predicted the number of critical illness hospitalizations for each month in our sample between 2003 and 2009. That included several terms that allowed for seasonal trends, because we know that hospitalization varies independent of even influenza over different months. So that first model allows us to say, well, what's the baseline rate of critical illness over time, without really factoring in any information about influenza? In our second model, then we added several terms that allowed us to characterize the extent to which influenza influences 
the number of critical illness hospitalizations for each month. And those terms derive from surveillance data that the CDC collected in the states that we were analyzing. So, for example, every year the CDC collects data from laboratories around the country that says how many laboratory tests are you performing for influenza and what fraction of those tests are positive. And we can capture that on a monthly basis and line up that specific month with the month that we're looking at in terms of the total number of critical illness hospitalizations. So in the second model, we added several of those terms, the influenza terms. That then says how much better are we able to predict critical illness hospitalization once we include data about influenza. If we then take the difference between those two models, what we can what we say is we can see the number of cases that are predicted with influenza accounted for, and we can subtract out the number of cases when influenza is not accounted for and get an assessment for what fraction or what percent of all cases are attributed to influenza being in the community. And that's where we arrive at this specific number that we quote in our paper, which is over the course of 2003 to 2009, there were about 27,000 influenza-associated critical illness hospitalizations, which reflected on about 1.3% of all critical care hospitalizations in the study sample. Okay. And I think something that the readers are probably thinking about is, with all of these mathematical assumptions, how do you go about validating some of these assumptions? Right. That's a great question that I wish some of my CDC colleagues who are involved in our study were on the call to potentially answer for me. What I can say, though, is that this the specific model that we've used in our paper has long been used by the Centers for Disease Control to estimate and track respiratory-related diagnoses over the course of a year. So this is sort of the standard approach that the Centers for Disease Control use to estimate what the burden is of various diseases over time using the surveillance data for influenza or potentially for other respiratory pathogens as well. And so while I can't get into necessarily the details underlying how the specific model was developed and tested. I can tell you that the folks at the CDC believe that this is the state-of-the-art way to determine the burden of disease from a respiratory pathogen standpoint. Okay. It sounds like it's considered quite a rigorous way to be looking at the data and analyzing trends. Yeah. One thing is certain is that this model being employed over time has really correlated quite highly with other national influenza surveillance data, biologic surveillance data, but also other influenza surveillance that has been out there that the CDC tracks. So they are standardizing the model against the gold standard of influenza surveillance, you know, influenza testing, as well as influenza diagnoses by clinicians. And so it is based upon a good gold standard. And it, as I said, it's been, the, it's been the way that the CDC has tracked respiratory disease for quite some time. Sure. A follow-up question I have about the methodology involved is, in your discussion, a very big part of the paper is about the estimated influenza-associated critical illness hospitalizations that is seen. So obviously that's extremely relevant to the paper and the conclusions that makes. And if you could just briefly fill us in on how you and your team did estimate the influenza-associated critical illness hospitalizations. Right. So sort of the first caveat here is to say that we defined critical illness in this very specific way that we lay out in the paper, but also in the supplementary content. And that was a decision that we made from the beginning, that we wanted to define critical illness encompassing the majority of illnesses that influenza contributes to. So those really being things such as sepsis, but also respiratory failure. Those were defined based upon administrative discharge claims or hospital discharge claims during a hospital stay. So, you know, as you're likely aware, when a 
patient comes into the hospital and is ultimately cared for and discharged, there's a discharge summary that's generated from that hospital stay. That discharge summary goes to medical coders who then mark down all the diagnoses that the patient had during their stay in a record, and that record is then what's submitted to insurers such that the hospital can be reimbursed for the care that they provide. Those discharge records or the codes for the diagnoses from those discharge records are provided to state governments, and then those state governments often provide them to national quality bodies to allow people like me and other investigators to use them for research. So these are not clinical data. They're not data based upon you know laboratory tests and so forth. And so there's some loss in fidelity in terms of the conditions that we're going to find. But one thing is clear, over the years, we've determine that using these administrative discharge claims, we can do a pretty good job at identifying patients with sepsis and do a pretty good job at identifying patients with respiratory failure. In terms of using the discharge diagnosis, they have a pretty high specificity for the conditions that we're interested in. The sensitivity may be somewhat low, but the specificity is generally quite quite good. And then in addition to sepsis and respiratory failure, we also identified people who died during the hospital stay. And that's largely to say that although many people come into the hospital and die outside of the ICU, often the common pathway through death is through critical illness. And so that was a decision that we made to include those patients in our estimation as well. So then once we had categorized, we had taken all the hospitalizations in those states and we had identified the patients who had sepsis, respiratory failure, or death, that kind of became the group of patients that we used in our analysis to determine what fraction of those people had a influenza-associated diagnosis based upon the model that we used the CDC surveillance data with. I think that, as we've said, you know, there are some assumptions there. One is that we were able to accurately identify critical illness using claims, which I think we're reasonably comfortable saying. Uh, another assumption is that the model does what it says, which is it predicts critical illness hospitalizations well. And then several other assumptions about virologic surveillance and whether or not there are other conditions that influenza could be contributing to that cause critical illness, but we're not capturing. So for example, influenza is known to cause circulatory disorders or, or perhaps even exacerbations of congestive heart failure that we're obviously not capturing. But one would argue that by excluding those populations of patients, we may be somewhat underestimating what the actual burden of influenza could be had we included those patients in our analysis. So we think that some of our estimates are conservative in that we're not necessarily completely and fully accounting for every type of critical illness in our models. Right. I think that's very thought-provoking for the clinicians out there. I think that makes a lot of sense to think about different ways that patients are presenting that could be complications of influenza and that we're not necessarily thinking about as obvious. Like you're saying, maybe CHF and even the criteria that you use to identify your patients, for example, sepsis. How do patients with influenza fulfill sepsis criteria? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And as you'll, you, you probably noted in our, in our analysis, among the three ways people qualified for critical illness in our study, the vast majority of those qualified qualified because they met criteria for sepsis based upon our definition. And it's difficult to say what fraction of all sepsis is due to viral pathogens or more specifically even due to influenza. In fact, if you go back and you look at a lot of the studies that characterize epidemiology of pathogens and sepsis, viral disease is not even included among them. But it is recognized that things such such as RSV and influenza and CMV and other viruses can cause sepsis. And I think that speaks to your point, which is that sepsis is really just a syndrome of vital sign and laboratory abnormalities in the context of somebody who you suspect has an infection. So for example, if you think of the typical influenza patient that we think of in the ICU is somebody who comes in perhaps with what looks like a pneumonia, 
maybe they have respiratory failure on a, on a ventilator. They're also tachypnic, they're tachycardic, they may have an elevated white count, they may also have a fever. So all those things would qualify a patient as having sepsis if you believe that the patient may have an infection. And so while, as we said, we didn't use clinical data to necessarily identify the relationship between influenza and sepsis, you know, there is some consistency that would suggest people that have severe influenza disease could easily meet criteria for sepsis as they're currently defined. Right. Yeah, I think that's very important for us to remember. Let's talk about the conclusions that your uh, study arrived at. So it's your conclusion that influenza is indeed a common cause of critical illness. Is that correct? Yeah, and you know, I think common here is a relative term. So like we said, you know, at the highest fraction of critical illness we could attribute to influenza was 3.4% of all cases during the influenza season between January and the spring. So 3.4%, you might say, is not necessarily that common. But at the same time, if you believe some of our numbers that suggest perhaps influenza may be being underdiagnosed and there's a treatment for that, you might argue that there's a sizable opportunity there to improve care for those patients. So our general conclusion is, you know, I think that 3, 3.4% of sepsis slash respiratory failure or death in the hospital is attributed to influenza. To me, that seems like a, a pretty large amount. Sure. How would you suggest that we determine which patient populations should be assessed and treated for influenza. How can we be more vigilant? And, you know, in this current environment where the healthcare dollar is being squeezed, how do we make this a sound economic decision as well? Yeah, I think that's the million-dollar question. I think right now this, the WHO, the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control, they recommend that all patients who have critical illness empirically receive some sort of neuraminidase or oseltamivir therapy if that patient presents during a time period when influenza is known to be circulating in the, in the community and treatment then be continued until an influenza test can be performed and the results are known. I think that there's a role for that, and I think one should probably dive a little bit deeper into the WHO and the CDC guidelines in this population to really understand the nuances of that decision-making. But I think certainly, to me, there's a lot that makes sense clinically with that recommendation. And let me explain why I think that. So as we said, the majority of patients in our analysis met criteria for critical illness because they had sepsis, and probably only somewhere between 40 to 60% of all sepsis cases end up having a culture positive for a fungus or a bacteria. And so there's a sizable proportion of people who meet criteria for sepsis that we don't know what their cause is. And so that raises the possibility that maybe it's actually a viral cause. And that's also important to keep in mind when thinking that influenza doesn't just circulate in the community between January and, and March or January and April because influenza is actually present all year round. So there may be a chunk of those patients that are culture negative, that have sepsis or have respiratory failure, that we never get a pathogen on that actually have influenza, that we're not really paying attention to because we just think this is culture negative sepsis. So I, I think it's reasonable in somebody who comes in with sepsis and also potentially somebody who comes in with respiratory failure, unless there's a very, very clear likelihood that a patient has a bacterial infection, meaning they, they have a positive blood culture right away, or they have a sputum culture that cultures out right away, or potentially has a gram stain that's positive, or there's some other source of potential infection like a, a dirty urine or perhaps the recent abdominal surgery and so forth. I think those are the patients in which the CDC recommendations would be perfectly reasonable to say, let's go ahead and treat this patient with a neuraminidase inhibitor up front and test the patient for influenza and keep it on until we can be certain that they don't have it. The bigger and the harder question that you asked is what are the implications for sort of the general cost for that strategy and, and is that a cost effectiveness strategy? And 
to be honest with you, I haven't reviewed the literature in this area recently enough to know how cost-effective oseltamivir is in the context of critical illness. But I can say that we do know that it does improve outcomes. And if we only have to treat it a patient for two days until the influenza test is negative, then I think that might be a reasonable cost in order to assure that patients that do test positive get the right treatment. But again, I think that's a difficult question to answer. Right, right. Well, I guess my follow-up for that very thoughtful response from you is, what are some of the further studies that you plan to do in this area to further our understanding of how to deal with the contribution of influenza to critical care admissions? Yeah, I think our group that was involved in this analysis are very aware in increasing the awareness of this issue. So I think we're still in a phase where we're trying to educate providers that influenza is an important contributor to critical illness and encouraging people to think about it, potentially test for it, and even consider empiric therapy in the context of people that have severe disease. So we have another study that is similar to the current one we're discussing now, but takes a little bit of a different angle towards this educational question. In that particular study, we're capitalizing on the fact that most current surveillance efforts that are performed in other countries outside of the United States focus on purely identifying patients with pneumonia. So, for example, they may say, well, we know that the incidence of pneumonia is 50 arbitrary units, and we know that influenza is circulating in the community, and so therefore influenza must be contributing to those pneumonia cases. But in reality, pneumonia isn't the only condition that influenza causes. We've already been discussing here today that it can cause sepsis, it can cause respiratory failure, even without necessarily being labeled a patient as pneumonia. So, we're actually in the process of characterizing how poorly a diagnosis of pneumonia reflects the true burden of influenza when you use it as a marker of influenza period, with the idea being that we are dramatically underestimating what influenza burden is by just looking purely at pneumonia diagnoses because we know that it can cause a lot of other conditions. So we've been doing some of those analyses in another project, again, demonstrating that the vast majority of patients who have influenza-related disease don't actually necessarily have pneumonia. And so therefore, countries that are using pneumonia to track influenza disease are dramatically underestimating the burden. So I sort of view that paper as well as this paper as kind of an educational effort to try and get the word out about the importance of influenza in critical care and to really understand that we're doing a poor job at characterizing the extent to which influenza causes problems in the ICU. Sure. And I can see how those data, together with some more public health modeling of the cost versus efficacy, would really be helpful in changing the way we approach this as a public health problem. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that some of the data that we're presenting here, and as well as in our other studies, I think are the types of data that could feed into a cost-effectiveness analysis, because clearly the burden of critical illness is quite high, and those patients are expensive, but at the same time, the mortality is quite high among them, and so we may be able to avert death if we treat people with treatment for influenza. Um, but in order to do that, we need to make sure that we're sort of identifying those patients up front. And so I think that some of the data that we have might be helpful in terms of those scientists that are interested in doing those cost-effectiveness analyses. Sure. Well, thank you all for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information.
For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Members receive discounts on all SCCM educational programs and resources. Please ask to speak to a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership. For more information, Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.